This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me. I'm Tracy Harris, and this is At Home in My Head, the podcast that explores life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Today's episode is part of a multi-part series titled Perspectives on Death that examines my experiences with death, both as a religious person and later in my secular life. I'll be explaining the ways in which death has impacted me, and perhaps touch on some responses and reactions that may resonate or offer alternatives to the experiences others may have had. This series mirrors articles from the At Home in My Head blog. A link to the blog series is also included in the description. And now for the next episode of Perspectives on Death, Mom and Dad. When I used to live in Florida, there was a horrifying child abuse case involving a two-year-old boy named Bradley McGee. To this day, I can't talk about it without choking up. Don't worry, I won't go into detail. My goal here is not to upset anyone. If you want details, you can Google it for yourself. But in addition to the case being headline news for quite some time, my mother was called to serve on the grand jury for Bradley's stepfather. I remember my mother complaining they weren't also able to indict Bradley's mother. I don't recall if it was because she hadn't directly participated or had agreed to testify against her husband. For years, though, I kept a clipping of the article that ran in the Orlando Sentinel detailing the case. His situation was so bad that Bradley's grandparents had tried to intervene, asking a family court judge not to return him to his mother's custody before he was murdered. Had Bradley lived, he'd be in his 30s today. I'm opening with this to explain I know there are worse parents in the world than the ones I was dealt. There are parents who show us that there are no boundaries to the evil a human being can do. There's a saying, don't let perfect be the enemy of good. It means there's value in being able to appreciate something good despite imperfections. Similarly, I would say don't let evil be the friend of bad. There are bad parents who aren't evil. And there are good parents who aren't perfect. There's a lot of room to maneuver between perfect and evil. But to explain my reaction to my parents' deaths requires context. It requires me to talk about an upbringing I'm not fond of, but one I acknowledge could have been worse. I view my upbringing not as a good that could have been better, but as a bad that could have been worse. I'm not whining. I'm not blaming. I'm not trying to appeal to anyone's pity or sympathy. I don't need validation, I've lived with this for years, and I've made my peace with it. I'm simply explaining what I experienced when my parents died and providing context. Growing up, my basic needs were always met. I didn't have the best of everything, but what I had served. Sufficient food, clean, intact clothes, and my own room. I grew up in a nuclear family, mom, dad, my brother, and me. 
My sister had moved out before I was old enough to remember, so she was more like an older cousin who came by sometimes. My father worked full-time. He was retired military, and my mother was a stay-at-home mom. Their parenting style was free-range. I don't recall many restrictions, no curfews or distance regulations. My brother was older and attended a different school located right next to mine, so we would go to school in the mornings, come home, do homework, go play. Dad would come home, we'd all be called for dinner, we'd eat, we'd go play some more until it was late and dark outside, and at some point we'd come home, watch TV, and go to bed. Weekends, we'd do whatever. No one kept tabs on us, and I never had chores. Never having chores sounds like a dream, but my mother used cleaning as a control mechanism. Looking back, she was obsessed with keeping a clean house. She cleaned with a strange, furious energy like an aerobic workout. Straightening our rooms was code for snooping through our things. Vacuuming or mowing the lawn on Saturday mornings was her passive-aggressive way to wake us up at early hours. She couldn't stand the thought of anyone sleeping in, especially my father, even though none of us had any reason to be up early. On Saturday mornings, she'd take us to go with her to grocery shopping. We'd eat kids' cereal and junk food and watch cartoons until the afternoon, and then go find our friends. On Sunday mornings, Sunday evenings, and Wednesday nights, we were dragged to church services at the Church of Christ, an authoritarian fundamentalist sect that supported a don't-spare-the-rod mentality and obedience through fear and intimidation. I wasn't neglected in the form of wanting for basic necessities. They met my legal requirements, but they were entirely emotionally disengaged. Growing up with my mom, I don't recall ever being close to her. As a child, I can't remember ever hearing she loved me. I don't remember any hugs or physical affection. I recall she showed a great deal of favoritism toward my brother and tended to have low opinions of me and my older sister by comparison. In situations where it was my word against pretty much anyone else's, I would be told I was the liar, even when I could offer corroborating evidence, and even though I was a pretty honest kid. My brother, on the other hand, could tell eye-rolling yarns and be believed without question or further investigation. While it's not unusual for Italian mothers to favor their sons, I suspect my mother experienced some negativity around her social role as a woman and resented my sister and me as reminders of her own frustrated situation. She projected quite a bit and had a generally low opinion of women. In summary, it appeared she hated her life with my father and saw her children as anchors. Her female children especially seemed to evoke rage against her situation due to symbolic connections. I can't prove this, but there is some back history and a few conversations around this that make me think it's the case. My mother suffered with mental health issues for which she refused to seek help. It's hard to fault her considering she grew up in a time when significant stigmas around mental disorders and illnesses were prominent. Before I was born, my father had been career military. The family moved around a lot and often lived on base. One story about that time told of how my dad was called into his CO's office and told to do something about my mother. She was constantly in the base doctor's office, and he was unable to find anything medically wrong with her. The doctor consulted with my mother and father and suggested she see a psychiatrist. She became enraged and insisted, I'm not crazy. She never followed up on the recommendation. 
We had to learn to live with her many phobias. Fear of snakes was by far the worst. And since we moved to Florida in the 1960s and lived in a residential development that was just being built from raw land, we had many encounters with snakes and snake-like creatures. I remember once being at a reptile farm where the handler was letting children pet a large non-poisonous snake wrapped around his arm. He had no idea my mother was phobic and walked up to us. My brother and I petted it. My mother was frozen. He put the snake up to her. She wasn't able to speak or move. He explained the snake wasn't poisonous or dangerous. After we explained it wasn't a rational fear, he withdrew the snake. I saw this reaction in my mom many times. But only once did I see this same reaction from her without a snake. It was at a party where a male dancer had been hired to entertain. Part of his shtick was to put his business cards in his speedo and let the ladies pull one out with their teeth. It was harmless fun, but when it came to my mother, she had the same frozen reaction, unable to speak, unable to move. But this time I actually saw her cry. It was clear something very deep was going on. Some years later, she revealed she'd become pregnant as the result of a date rape. This was how she ended up married to my father. She was also claustrophobic, or maybe she had agoraphobia related to anxiety attacks, which can look similar. Since she never sought professional help, I have no idea. I didn't even know she had anxiety attacks until I met people who had them, and I realized, oh, that's just like my mom. There was a ride at Disney World in Orlando called 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea. As a child, I recall her having one of her attacks. She couldn't breathe. People tried to get her to an air vent. Now that I realized what was happening, it had nothing to do with access to air. They had to stop the ride, back it up, and let us all off. It became worse for her later in life. Eventually, she was unable to step into an elevator. She'd put us on an elevator, and then she'd take the stairs. She also had sleep paralysis with visual hallucinations. It wasn't unusual to hear her wailing in the middle of the night, or even midday if she took a nap. She always had the same experience, seeing someone coming into the window with a knife. I have a memory that persists whenever I think about my mother. I don't know if it ties into my response to her death, but since it's tenacious, I'll tell it. This incident by itself seems minor, but I think it's representative of an overall dynamic that pervaded our relationship. There was a local park I played at often. In the grass were a lot of small ground cover weeds. Some of them sprouted tiny flowers, much too small to be eye-catching. Only a quarter inch or so across. I would make mini bouquets out of them, mostly yellow and purple, and bring them home to my mother. She would scold me for bringing weeds into the house and let me toss them outside. My reaction was disappointment, but I recall it happening more than once, as though I couldn't remember her response until it happened again. I did finally understand not to continue doing it, but that memory has stuck with me. I can't imagine ever doing that to a child of my own. Children give parents all sorts of weird gifts, like messed up scribble drawings to hang on the refrigerator. The appropriate reaction is to fawn and find it funny and hang it up proudly. You toss it at the appropriate time when the kid isn't around anymore to make room for the next work of art. 
who looks at something like that and says, what the heck is that mess supposed to be? It looks like scribble. You aren't very good at drawing. It didn't help that both she and my dad were also violent, not with one another, but with us. With each other, my father would pass her by, hug her, kiss her cheek, and say, I love you, babe. Her face would turn to disgust, and she would visibly recoil as though she couldn't stand him. She denigrated him constantly. He ignored it and continued on as though everything was wonderful. I once asked him why he married her. As an adult looking back on that, I'm stunned at the implications of a child asking their parents why they ever married. He said my mother was a virgin and it was the only way he was going to get some with her. As an adult, I know my mother was pregnant when they were married. My father lied to me. I guess he figured anything sounded better than she got pregnant after I raped her. But this was the level of dysfunction I grew up in, compounded by violent punishments. I don't remember all the things I got beaten for. My mother would use a hand if she was in a hurry, but a belt if she had time and wanted to do it right. I remember once getting chewing gum stuck all over my hand at church. That earned me a beating with a belt when we got home. I remember feeling terrified all the way home, knowing what was coming. High crimes like getting gum stuck to my hand warranted a beating. I remember one argument in my early teens, we were yelling at each other, which was normal in our house. I didn't swear, I didn't insult her, I just told her I couldn't wait to turn 18 so I could move out. That one earned me a hit in the face. I was well into my 30s before I realized how messed up it is for an adult to hit a child. Until then, I used to defend it. I'd say I deserved it because I knew the rules, or that it was just a spanking. I'm glad I overcame that later in life. And here's a fun fact. Jesuit missionaries recorded their distress that North American Huron populations didn't beat their children. They thought it was no wonder that these tribes were savages since none of the children were beaten. The Jesuits went on to show their superior civility by slaughtering the adults and raising the children in missions where they could be beaten and raised as good Christians. But that was life with my mother. Growing up with my dad, well, when I was very young, my dad was affectionate. We had a nightly ritual when he came home. I'd run up to meet him, and he'd give me a big hug and pick me up. I often sat with him. He would play guitar and sing to me. He was a smoker. I remember playing on the floor, passing my hand through clouds of smoke hanging in the air all around me. Back then, nobody thought about smoking as a health concern. He started when he was 10 years old. He smoked his whole life, dying well into his 80s of unrelated causes. I remember he had tattoos, but they were old and fuzzy, and I don't recall what they were. He was retired military and worked as a mechanic, at one point owning his own shop. Later in life, when his arthritis got worse, he went to school and became a realtor, eventually earning a broker's license. Despite the more innocent preschool years, I remember being afraid of him. He often shouted to get us to obey. His voice was frightening and intimidating. Beyond that, I remember beatings with the belt. Again, by way of example, he'd put up a swing set for my sister's kids. He told me my friends and I were too big for it, so not to play on it. We were outside playing, and we were running around the set and jumping through one of the swings. We weren't sitting on it or putting any stress on the structure. We weren't touching it at all. But one of my friends clipped the plastic swing seat with her foot and broke off a small piece of plastic on the side. 
I remember being terrified. We got rid of the piece and I didn't say anything about it. But apparently someone saw it and reported me because when my dad got home, he came into my room. Didn't I tell you not to play on that swing set? I was sick with fear and stress. Yes. But you did and you broke it. Yes. He took off his belt and wailed on me. I was bruised for days. I remember wondering if I should show someone the bruises, but I never did. Later he came back in and asked me to come outside and show him what had happened. He wanted to see where it was broken, so I went outside. Clearly the damage was so minor he wasn't able to recognize it. After I explained it, he seemed remorseful. He asked me why I didn't tell him what happened. But when you parent through violence, fear, and intimidation, you don't get to second-guess your victims for being afraid to stand up for themselves. I told him what he asked. I told him the truth. He was the one who decided to hand down a beating. I also remember how strained and distant our relationship grew. It was annoying and awkward to be around him. He would come into my room and sit there silently. He wouldn't say or do anything, just sit. He never asked if I felt comfortable with having him there. I didn't want to be around him. And when I took up guitar, he would sometimes come in while I was playing and ask me to play something. I would, but not with any joy. I did it because I was told to. I hated every strained and awkward second of it. I know these must seem like weird odds and ends, like bits and pieces of things pulled out of the back of an old dresser drawer. But this is what I think about when I try to understand my reactions to their deaths. When I think of my mother and my father, these are my thoughts. These are the recollections. It's what's left of them. This is the legacy they left me. I remember playing some game with the family. We were answering these questions for fun. One of them said something like, Is there anything you want to tell someone that you've never told them? I remember my father's answer. He said he'd never told my brother that he loved him, and he didn't know why it was so hard. He told me once that he never measured up to what his father thought a man should be. Ironically, my brother never measured up to whatever my dad thought a man should be, and I'm still not clear on what that is. I remember my brother-in-law calling my dad out one night for the awful way he treated my brother. My dad had said he might as well sign him up for piano lessons. It was an odd way to express it, but it was a homophobic insult. He was insinuating my brother was gay. I remember my dad getting so angry at me once that he told me to never speak to him again. I was so relieved. I had permission to ignore him for the rest of my life. After three days, he came to me to make amends. Whatever my level of respect for him, it sunk even lower. I couldn't bear watching him grovel. And for what? There was no relationship there to repair. There hadn't been in years. Another strong memory I have is this old false pride he had in my brother and I. He never took any active interest in what we did. Again, there was no engagement. But he'd crow about what we did as though he could appreciate it. He never spent any time helping me with my homework, but if I pulled an A on a report, he'd say, Of course you did. That's what I expect from you. I knew you'd do great. How, though? How would he have any expectations about my grade on a report he didn't even know I was working on? There's a lot more I could tell, but it's already gone too long. I won't get into details about how my dad once sat me down to tell me I had too many Asian friends, 
or how he loved to brag about the severity of the beatings he gave my older sister, I'll just move ahead a few decades to what happened when I was an adult. Later in life, after I moved away, I would call home at the holidays. Nobody from home ever called me. I'd fly back and visit every three years or so. My dad might stop in to say hey during a road trip back to see his family in the Midwest. At one point, my mom had health issues and a multiple bypass was coming up. It must have put the fear of God into her because she said she needed to tell us all that she loved us since she never had. When she called me, I asked her if she remembered when I sat on her sofa with her and told her point blank that I never remembered her telling me that she loved me or even giving me a hug. During that conversation, she told me I was crazy. But now, here she was, admitting it. She said, I don't remember that, but if I said that, I was wrong. In my head, I thought, damn right you were wrong. What I said out loud was that it didn't make any difference to me, but I was glad she was able to express it now, if only to make herself feel better. I was glad that before she died, she could finally express affection. On one visit back home, I was in the kitchen with my mother cooking a dinner for my parents. My dad was in the other room with my then-husband talking about the past. I heard him say he'd never laid a hand on me or my brother. I stepped out of the kitchen and said, Wait, you never laid a hand on me or my brother? Do you mean compared to our sister? He answered, No, I never laid a hand on either you or your brother. I just said, Wow, okay, whatever lets you sleep at night. When I went back into the kitchen, my mother whispered to me, He says that all the time now to everyone. My husband and I had dinner with my brother before we left. I asked my brother, Hey, did Dad ever tell you he never laid a hand on us when we were little? Huh, no, I never heard that. You mean compared to our sister? I laughed. No, I even asked him that. If he meant compared to her, he said no. Mom says he says this all the time now to everyone. My brother just said, No, I haven't heard that yet, but I don't see him that much. When I do go over, I don't talk to him. My mother died first. She became progressively ill and passed away at home. My father died later in the hospital before he could be moved to hospice. In both cases, I talked to my brother about logistics. He and my sister still lived in Florida and were seeing to the arrangements. I asked if I needed to be there. Would it seem crass if I didn't make an appearance? He said there wasn't really anything I could do and that it didn't seem worth flying out for, so I didn't. I've never regretted it, and I don't even know how many years ago that was because it's not significant to me. I had no emotional reaction to either death, I felt no need to participate, and nobody in my family reached out to me beyond letting me know they died. I remember a phone conversation with my sister. I reminded her how our father bragged about how badly he'd beaten her. She said, But it wasn't all bad. There were good times, too. I asked her what she would have said to me if I was dating someone who hit me, and I told her, It isn't all bad. Sometimes he's really nice. She just said, Well, I mean, when you put it like that, it sounds pretty bad. Yeah, it does sound bad. If someone wants a relationship with me... Assaulting me when I make a mistake or do things they don't like is a huge disqualifier. Sometime later, my sister texted me an odd thing. She apologized to me for not being a better sister. 
I told her I understood she'd left home and built the best life she could with her own family. I didn't expect anything from her. I certainly didn't harbor any negativity toward her or feel she'd let me down in some way. I told her I grew up in the same house with our brother and I barely have contact with him, so she had nothing to feel bad about. I called my brother recently. I wanted to talk to him about the incident where my mom hit me in the face. I was hoping to ask him about what he recalled because he had been the only other person there when it happened. Unfortunately, he said he didn't remember that specific incident. After talking to him a bit about our current lives and some of our past, I wanted to ask him if he found it hard to bond with other people, because I do. All I got out was, can you even bond with another human being? He cut me off. No. They say you can't miss something you've never had. In my case, that's true. I don't miss close associations. As an adult, I identify as an introvert. And while I don't have any sense of something lacking or feelings of deprivation, I've come to wonder how my life might have been if I'd learned to engage or connect or bond. I don't think I realized it was something I didn't do until later in life. I also think I'm missing a lot of emotional range. But at the same time, I wonder how many other people are going through life having the same experience. Especially in the U.S. with our Christian evangelical context, I imagine a lot of people are being raised similarly, not empathizing well with others and having to filter inappropriate humor, feeling emotionally subdued except for the highs and lows, judging people with high levels of empathy as weak or too emotionally sensitive. In my case, I broke the cycle by not having children. It's not the reason I never had children, but it's one more bonus to that decision. I remember once saying publicly that I think it's fine to distance from toxic relations, even parents. After that public comment aired, I got flooded with correspondence from people telling me thank you. There is so much pressure on adult children in our society to take responsibility for relationships with dysfunctional parents. But these people had no say in their own creation or how they were raised. Children aren't created with obligations. They don't arrive with guarantees. They arrive with needs. And it's their caregivers who are obligated once they decide to take on the responsibility of parenthood. Children will naturally strive to repair that bond when it goes south. But ultimately, the obligation is not on the person who never gave consent to be a participant in the relationship. And it's abusive to use a child's strong desire for a parental bond and approval to make them slave to fix what their parents have broken. I sometimes ask myself, if I wasn't related to this person, would I choose them as a friend? If the answer is no, then I don't need them in my life. DNA is not a substitute for emotional bonding and attachment, and it's not an excuse to keep people in my life who are a negative influence. Sometimes it's simply a fact that not being close to some people is more healthy for us in our lives. But when we say out loud, my parents were not good people and I don't love them and am not especially interested in spending too much time around them, we're often shamed for it. We're told that it's our job to mend fences or forgive. After all, they say, they're your parents. If you don't rebuild those bridges or find a way to create a positive bond, you'll regret it. It'll gnaw at you. And God forbid if they die, you'll forever lose the chance to have that nurturing connection that's so vital to becoming a healthy human being. Don't get me wrong, I agree that relationship is vital. But it's only as useful as it is healthy. 
If a child can't have a healthy connection with a parent, I'm willing to suggest it may be better to have no connection than maintain a toxic one. So on a sliding scale, having good parents who nurture you and foster that bond, I agree, is probably a best case. But second best, I don't think, is a bond at any cost. No bond, for me, was a better choice. And I don't remember what year they died, but I know it's been some years, and if I'm going to regret anything, it better happen soon because I'm not getting any younger. Point being, I still don't regret not caring that they died. Not that regretting it would change anything. I don't presume to tell anyone else what to do. I'm sure there are people living with regrets about broken family relationships. I'm just not one of them. And before I'd advise someone else to try and mend fences, I'd take a long, hard look at whether moving to a new house with a better fence or tearing that broken fence down entirely might be the best way to go. it for this episode of At Home in My Head, exploring life in the cottage at Woodland Corners. Thanks for listening, and as always, stay safe, be well, and never stop exploring.